Welcome to A New Republic, An Oral History of the Indian Constitution, Episode 14, An Imperial Masterpiece. Welcome back to A New Republic after what has been a very, very long break. In fact, I think that the entire serial podcast, the worldwide podcast sensation, the podcast that made podcasts sexy again, that entire podcast came and went in the space between this episode and the last one, which is kind of embarrassing and quite shameful, but still, better late than never. Uh, Let's just soldier on with episode 14. And unlike in the past, I'm not going to open with an audacious commitment to disciplined podcasting, because I'm I'm starting to get the feeling that um, that's kind of becoming a jinx curse on this show. So uh, why don't we just carry on without any more pledges and promises and hope that um, the episodes are regular. Fingers crossed. Uh, Just one final word before we plunge in. If you're wondering why I sound particularly alluring in this episode, it is because I'm just recovering from a very bad cold. So um, as much as I love this uh, deep voice, it will only be a temporary one-time bonus for listeners. So there. So here we are. Episode 14. We have now, finally, after winding our way through almost a century of Indian history, arrived at the Government of India Act of 1935. This act, my friends, is the single most important document of all the many documents we've dealt with on this podcast so far. It is the one with the most lasting impact, and it is the one pre-independence document that continues to permeate through the lives of millions of Indians and perhaps millions of Pakistanis to this day. Now, some of this, um, this sustained relevance is understandable. After all, this is the last Government of India Act before independence. So naturally, you'd expect a lot of the ideas to have trickled through uh, to India's constitution. But what is amazing is that the Government of India Act of 1935 continues to have such an impact on India, despite being what I think is a masterpiece in imperial command and control policy. And this is why I'm going to set aside two entire episodes to discuss the Act of 1935. In this episode, we look at the context in which the act was drawn up. We will look at what the British were trying to achieve, and we'll also try to quickly get a sense of the state of the Indian freedom movement. Now, doing this, understanding the context, is extremely important. We need to keep in mind that constitutions don't exist in political or social or economic vacuums. These documents are very much a reflection of the society in which they are written, the people who write them and the compulsions that are in effect on the authors of these constitutions. It's important to keep this in mind. Um, So that's what we'll cover in this episode. And in the next part of this podcast, episode 15, we look at the specific clauses and elements and ideas in the Act of 1935 that really stand out. And I want to particularly focus on those ideas and those institutions that were brought about by the Act of 1935, but still persist in India to this day. So, First things first, context. During this period in the early 30s, 1930s, what was the situation like in India and what was the situation like in London? Now, in India, uh, if you recall the previous um, episodes, uh, the roundtable conferences have concluded and for all but a very small section of Indian leaders, these conferences are a complete disaster. Uh, First of all, they did nothing to advance the cause of uh, Indian self-government. In the larger scheme of things, the roundtable conferences were a complete and utter waste of time, which is, I think, why um, they are touched upon so lightly in our history books and especially in our school textbooks. 
we know that they happen, but we don't really dwell on um, the the implications and the people involved and so on, at least in my memory. Um, in fact, the only thing that the conferences really helped to achieve was to further fragment the Indian freedom movement. And while the movement hadn't completely fallen apart, the roundtable conferences helped to drive deep, large wedges between at least three pairs of parties, at least three groups of leaders. It drove Dalits and other Hindus apart. It drove Hindus and Muslims further apart. And it drove moderates and radical Indian leaders further apart. So to that extent, um, the conferences were a victory for the British. If their goal had been to turn the entire series of discussions into useless talk shops that delayed Indian unity, that goal had been achieved splendidly. So essentially what we have is a series of discussions meant to advance Indian self-government that end up pitting Indians against Indians instead of pitting Indians against the empire. And these conferences ended, as we saw, with the Ramsey MacDonald Communal Award. An electoral quota largely meant, in fact completely meant, to sway Muslim uh, leaders, loyalties and Muslim groups away from the Congress and the mainstream independence movement. But the most important aspect of the freedom movement at this point, at least from my view, is Mahatma Gandhi's highly diminished profile. As I mentioned last time, Gandhi somehow managed to emerge from the debacle of the conference unscathed. Despite numerous personal setbacks, Gandhi somehow manages to stay politically relevant, albeit on the fringes. All this means that by the early 1930s, the Indian question is in a very strange place for both the Indians and for the British. First, let's look at the British situation. You might assume that because the conferences have thoroughly failed and the Indian freedom movement has hit an impasse, that the British are completely thrilled. Well, of course, they're thrilled, but that doesn't mean that they can just hang around, you know, drinking Earl Grey tea, eating cucumber sandwiches, losing penalty shootouts or whatever. Um, because there are several reasons why they can't stand still. First of all, the British had promised in the Government of India Act of 1919 to review Indian government in 10 years' time. But 1929 had long come and gone, and there was still no closer to a new act. And the British knew that the price of inaction was essentially instability in India. They'd already seen the havoc unleashed by the civil disobedience movement. They just did not want to go through something like that all over again. But then you might ask, why hurry? Sure, you have to do something, but why, why run? Because isn't the freedom movement in a terrible place? Um, isn't Gandhi's position weakened? Who will oppose the British? For the British, this weakening in Indian leadership was both an opportunity and a challenge. It was a classic double-edged sword. It was an opportunity to get stuff done with minimal opposition. But it was also a challenge because at least when Gandhi and the Congress was in charge, they knew, so to speak, who to Larti charge. But if a new generation of leaders came and took over the moderate position or took over Gandhi's position, then things could get very difficult. They'd have to start all over again with suppressing a new generation of leaders. So they had to act quickly before this window of opportunity presented by weak Indian leadership, closed on them. The final factor influencing the British was the Conservative government in London. The Conservatives wanted to yield, as usual, nothing while appearing to be benevolent. This sits at the heart of uh, Conservative British politics um, in their approach to the Indian question. And what could be a better chance to do this? To seem like you're moving, but actually not move at all, what is a better chance to do this than a fresh Indian constitution passed unilaterally with minimal Indian opposition. So those are the factors driving the British. What about the Indians? 
what situation do they find themselves in? And the answer to that is quite simple. The situation is very, 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 very bad. And they're very, very, very bad for a couple of reasons. And I've kind of uh, whittled it down to three, three key trends for the purposes of this podcast. The first trend is Mahatma Gandhi's kind of self-imposed political exile. By 1934, Gandhi had resigned from the Congress. Now, I've been doing some reading and there seems to be many, many theories, um, including conspiracy theories, on why exactly Gandhi resigns. But to me, two reasons stand out. First of all, Gandhi didn't want his personal politics and popularity to narrow the Congress's appeal. In other words, he was trying to make sure that non-Gandhians didn't feel put off from the Congress because of Gandhi's presence and this huge looming presence of his ideology. He was hoping that even non-Gandhians would be drawn into the, uh, into the Congress fold. So that is one reason. Secondly, perhaps Gandhi was afraid that his personal failures throughout the early 1930s, especially at the roundtable conferences and especially in his engagement with Ambedkar and the Pune Pact, would rub off on the Congress. Perhaps he hoped that by stepping away, he'd, be, he'd help the Congress to retain its popularity, retain its credibility and retain its leadership within the freedom movement. So perhaps he thought that it best that he take a step back and let the Congress discover its own personality, so to speak. Meanwhile, the conventional mainstream freedom movement has become sluggish. It's slowed down. It's no longer as effective. It's not really hitting the British hard. Instead, what we see is a new generation of violent freedom fighters begin to operate. And these groups begin to express their dissatisfaction with the British in brutal, violent, hard, uncompromising ways. Now, there is a tendency in many history books to glorify these extremist fighters and celebrate their frequent martyrdoms. But in my reading, these violent protests were at best irritants to the British. So while perhaps these martyrs helped to galvanize the nationalist sentiment, um, I think their violent acts appear to have done little to advance the, the kind of the more important, the larger cause, which is the cause of Indian self-government and Indian independence. Now, I know this is a controversial view. I know many people will disagree with me, but I'm still putting this out there for discussion and debate. So overall, what we see is a particularly moribund period for the Indian freedom struggle. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the Indian freedom struggle in many ways is a spent force between the 1930s and the Second World War. Instead of fighting the British, much more energy seems to have been spent on internal political struggles. And chief amongst these struggles is the growing animosity between the Congress and the Muslim League. This growing tension will eventually culminate in the Lahore Resolution of 1940. And that resolution, as many of us know, will eventually lead to partition and the creation of Pakistan. But we'll talk about the resolution and its context and the leaders involved in a future episode. We'll get there. Uh, but right now, just keep in mind that um, the freedom struggle is just going to face a really difficult phase, perhaps for the next decade in Indian history. So to summarize my summarization so far, the British have to do something as soon as possible, but nothing that yields any real freedom to the Indians. Meanwhile, the Indians are too busy fighting themselves. So what would you expect to happen at this point? You'd probably expect the British to quickly put together an updated version, say, of the Government of India Act of 1919, quickly pass it through Parliament, live up to their commitments, control the Indians, answer the question, and then sit back and gloat. That's what you'd expect, right? And you'd be very, very wrong. Instead, what you get is a monumental effort in English imperialism, 
The Government of India Act of 1935 is a case study in how to suffocate a subject people's aspirations with paperwork. You know, if you ask me in the future, for whatever reason, if colonialism becomes cool again, you know, and if you read Asimov's books and a bunch of other science fiction, you get the sense that we're all heading towards a galactic empire of some kind. And, and if, you know, if that actually happens and, um, and um, if colonialism becomes cool again, future colonialists, future imperialists should take a look at the Government of India Act of 1935. If they want to know how the pros used to do it, how the experts got their work done, this is the document they should look at. And it is for all these reasons that what happens next for me is so strange. So look at this. Here you have this masterpiece in imperial legislation. You'd expect India and Pakistan to immediately get rid of the bloody thing as soon as they get independence. But in fact, they don't. Instead, they retain a lot of it. Especially in India, we can see the sustained impact, the sustained influence of the Government of India Act of 1935 to this day. Uh, shortly before recording this podcast, I was discussing very briefly the Act of 35 with a lawyer, scholarly lawyer, friend of mine. And uh, he told me how uh, in all the, of all the documents he studied, this is perhaps the most vile constitutional um, approach, constitutional uh, piece of work. Now, before you think that our founding fathers took the easy way out and just copy-pasted chunks of the Act of 35 um, when they wrote the Indian Constitution, I want you to kindly take a moment of pause. Wait. Yes, the Act of 1935 did have a huge influence on the eventual Constitution of India. Yes, many of the clauses and sections were retained, but that doesn't automatically mean that all these bits were bad or in some way colonialist or imperialist. Some of these retained elements were useful and meaningful. To give you just one example, the Reserve Bank of India, for instance, is an outcome of the Government of India Act of 1935. Which is why in the next episode of this podcast, uh, episode 15, I'll devote all our time to look at these aspects of the Act. What were the key issues handled? How did the Act handle it? How much of these methods do we still see in Indian government today? Which were the good bits and which were the terrible bits? But I don't want to kind of leave you hanging for uh, some insight. So let me give you a short glimpse. And let me do this by pointing out five distinguishing features that I've just picked. So it's not um, in any order of scholarly relevance. But these are five distinguishing features of the Government of India Act of 1935 that I've picked. Number one. It does not have a preamble. Number two, it does not have a Bill of Rights. Number three, it proposes a federal structure for India. Number four, it proposes a certain level of provincial autonomy. And number five, it expanded the electorate eligible to take part in elections. Now you're probably thinking, wow, a lot of these things sound really mundane. What is the point of a preamble? What is the point of a Bill of Rights in such a document? And isn't an expanded electorate a good thing? In fact, each of these five things were deliberately designed to control India even more tightly, yield as little self-government as possible, and fragment the freedom struggle even more. How? Let me just very quickly explain. The Act of 1935 did not have a preamble because, and this is a slightly wishy-washy way of explaining it, but a preamble always means that you're promising, um, that you're kind of placing this document in a continuum. You're going to say uh, the Government of India Act of 1935 is a first step towards growing Indian self-government or towards making India dominion or whatever it is. By leaving out the preamble, 
um, the British didn't have to commit to anything. It could be a standalone document that could be reviewed in an entirely new way in the future. They were committing to nothing. Second, there is no Bill of Rights because there was no intention of yielding any more rights. They didn't want to even, um, they didn't even want to bring up the idea of discussing rights, fundamental or otherwise. Number three, it proposes a federal structure for India. Yes, this is important. It's a big country. It needs to be governed. But remember, the federal structure was also designed with a view to fragment national politics and to kind of distract the freedom movement with domestic politics and state-level politics and provincial politics. It proposes a certain level of provincial autonomy. That was point number four that I mentioned. Yes, it does, so that there is a stake in provincial politics. There's no point in trying to distract national freedom movement leaders by telling them that, oh, look, now we've got state governments to worry about if there's nothing to do at the state level. So the, the an element of yielding provincial autonomy was also to draw leadership away from the center, from the spearhead of the freedom movement. And finally, point number five, the act expands the electorate in India, which is a good thing, um, which is definitely better than giving less people the vote. But the nefarious motive here, so to speak, is to um, expand the electorate, is to fragment, is to create more political parties, is hopefully to make uh, it even more difficult for the Congress and the moderates to dominate, is to somehow um, drive greater gaps between Hindus and Muslims and Dalits and Hindus. Five things that look either mundane um, or look pointless or even might even look virtuous are all deeply embedded in a philosophy which is to yield as little control as possible and fragment the freedom struggle as much as possible. So that's important to keep in mind. So in the next episode, we'll discuss all of these things. We'll see how, how these things panned out. We'll look at the uh, enduring legacy of the Act of 1935. I'll pick out a couple of particularly good and particularly bad bits. We'll look at how it was received in India. And we'll also set the stage for the next decade or so um, in the history of the Indian Constitution. All that and more in the next episode in the world's most irregular podcast on the Indian Constitution, A New Republic. So till then, take care and bye-bye.